Hello and welcome to PTO Extra. In today's episode, I spoke with Rana Barakat about the current humanitarian situation in the occupied Palestinian territories, the significance of the recent general strike and the protests amongst Palestinians within the 1948 borders. And we also talked about what Israel's escalation of violence may mean for Netanyahu's efforts at normalising Israel's relations with Arab states in the region. For new listeners to the show, just to mention that PTO Extra, shorter episodes of the show on current events, are usually available to £5 subscribers to the show. But today's episode is being made freely available to non-subscribers, and we'd like to encourage listeners, if they're able to, to donate to Medical Aid for Palestinians, which you can do at map.org.uk. Rana Barakat is Assistant Professor of History at Berzait University in Palestine. Her research interests include the history and historiography of colonialism, nationalism and cultures of resistance. Her writing has appeared in the Journal of Palestine Studies and Jerusalem Quarterly, amongst other publications, and she's currently completing two book monographs. Firstly, The Barak Revolt, Constructing a History of Resistance in Palestine, and secondly, Lifter and Resisting the Museumification of Palestine, Indigenous History of the Nakba. Rana spoke to me from Ramallah in the occupied West Bank. We're speaking on Wednesday evening, and and as of the latest reports, 217 Palestinians, uh, including 63 children, have been reported as as killed since the the 10th of May, primarily in Israeli airstrikes and mostly in Gaza, though a, a significant number of people have also been killed in the West Bank. Yesterday, we heard the uh, appalling story of 11 children aged between 5 and 15 years old who'd been receiving uh, trauma counselling from the Norwegian Refugee Council and were then killed in Israeli airstrikes that targeted their homes. And today, the Israeli journalist Amira Haas has an article in the uh, liberal Israeli newspaper Haaretz where she alleges that the IDF are knowingly wiping out entire Palestinian families. Um, so before uh, we go into, into more of the detail, could you just say something in general on your sense of the overall humanitarian situation in the occupied territories in, in, in Gaza, but also in the, in the West Bank, where you currently are? Sure. I would like to begin by saying that you know, I understand the impetus of the question of the humanitarian situation because this is like a fire that's burning and, and the world is seeing the fire burning right now. But I, I kind of would like to locate that question within the larger political and historical context. Um, so the numbers that you that you quoted were from May 10th. And um, I think that it's an important distinction because that's when the Israelis started bombing Gaza. Yeah. Um, but I do want to say that, you know, this particular iteration, if that's what we can call it, I'm going to try to qualify that later on, hopefully in our conversation. But this particular iteration of incitement began at the beginning of the holy month of Ramadan. Um, and it was centered in Jerusalem at first with incursions of the Israeli police and border guards and later army, both within the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood and on the Haram al-Sharif and the, and the Aqsa Mosque um, within the old city walls. So I think it's important to see that larger story, even slightly larger. I think actually, I personally think it's important to see the much larger story. But even within this iteration, I think that's important to see. And um, and so certainly the, the death toll is immense. I mean, it's, it's incomprehensible, frankly, um, because of the kind of genocidal bombing that has happened over the last I think we're on day 10 now. I've lost track of days. Um, So I think what we're looking at, what we're seeing on our television screens right now is just constant and ongoing and what is obviously seemingly indiscriminate 
bombing in the entirety of the, of the Gaza Strip with the full knowledge that this is the third war in the last decade plus a few years. So since 2009, 2010, 2012, 2014, and now 2021, this is an attack on Gaza. And don't forget that for the last um, 16 years, it's been it's also been a siege. So the Gaza Strip situation in general is 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 incomprehensible and indescribable. And now it's just become even more in, incomprehensible and indescribable. UNRWA just had a press conference today talking about the situation in terms of what they can do and what they have not been able to do. Um, part of the indiscriminate bombing has that water was affected yesterday. UNRWA is trying to reestablish some kind of water system. So if you think about basic human needs, electricity, water, air, these are things that are not available to people in Gaza and they are under constant, constant bombing day and night. So I'm not quite so sure. There's, there's how no to... sense of, of a kind of normal and, and a non-normal situation in Gaza. Well, I have, you know, I ha- I'm not in Gaza. I'm in, I'm in Ramallah, as you mentioned, but you know, we're, we're all watching from afar, some closer than others. And I do, you know, I have students whose families are in Gaza. And what they're saying to me this time around is that there isn't a moment of quiet and there isn't a safe space. Um, so they're talking about how their families, you know, they leave if they if they know a bombing is going to happen in a certain neighborhood, but they have nowhere to go. Um, so there is, the, as I said, this is this is in in my limited capacity almost indescribable to to sort of take in what's happening in Gaza. And as you mentioned, this is actually happening. It, it, this is happening throughout historic Palestine. So yesterday and the day before, the Israeli army started to use live fire in addition to the sound bombs, the skunk water, the rubber bullets that they had been using, uh, both in Jerusalem and in the West Bank. Um, And as you mentioned, there have been killings um, in Jerusalem and the West Bank. And just about an hour ago, there was um, somebody who was injured in in Umm al-Fahim, which is a town in 48 Palestine within the Green Line, um, has passed. So we have we have martyrs in all parts of historic Palestine right now. And I think one one thing to note is what I want to get across is, as a historian is that this is a longer story. But I think there is something really extraordinary about this moment, which is just the amount of violence that the Israelis have allowed themselves to use. In my humble opinion, I'm not sure I've seen this before. And we've seen a lot of settler violence from the Israelis for the last hundred years. But just this last 10 days have been utterly extraordinary. There was a report today in in, in the Financial Times where a Palestinian source suggested that the current strikes, as as well as the the violence in terms of the number of people being being killed and and, and, uh, residences destroyed and so on, but that also a particularly heavy toll seems to be being taken on the infrastructure of, of, of Gaza. Is it your sense that there is a, a deliberate policy to to much more intensively attack infrastructure uh, in order to make uh, living in, in, in Gaza effectively impossible? Or, or do you think in that regard, it's fairly similar to how the IDF uh, operated during uh, Operation Cast Lead in, in 2008-9 or, or Operation Protective Edge in 2014? I think, I think it's actually to... to you know, I think it's both. I think it's both in terms of this is a methodological kind of colonial violence, right? There is a consistency over time in in the kind of methods. Now, what's changed over time, obviously, are the techniques, the tactics, and the and the technological abilities. But I think, at least in in what I've seen, is that 
It's an intensification. And that means that each war of the ones that you mentioned was an intensification of the one before it. So what we're seeing right now is a accumulation of that kind of intensification. So the, the amount of bombs, the size of them, the consistency of them, and what is being described as the indiscriminacy of them is that the entire infrastructure is being attacked. Now, that was the case in 2014, over 51 days. Um, but over these days, it, they seem to have, in a very draconian sense, accomplished more in less time with far greater and bigger weapons. If one tries to find logic in this, and I'm not one of the, I'm not somebody to turn to to find logic in it, but they do seem to be attacking yesterday or the day before, I've, I've lost track of time at this point, they, they destroyed the only corona clinic, the COVID-19 clinic in Gaza. Um, you know, I'm not quite sure what an ideological reasoning behind that would be, but they've also been attacking civilian neighborhoods. And as you've seen, part of the last 10 days has been a consistent attack on 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 residents, you know, people who are living in residential areas and in this in this very small and incredibly densely populated um, area of the Gaza Strip. So, again, it's, I think it's a continuation, but it's an it, it seems to be an intensification of that continuation. So it's not it's different and it's the same. Thus far, we haven't seen a large-scale ground operation in Gaza on the part of the of the IDF, which obviously we saw in in uh, those previous operations that we've that we've just talked about. Do you think part of what may be going on that the Israeli military is seeking to substitute ground force with with just greater airstrikes because obviously Israel doesn't like to lose its own uh, its own soldiers. Let's look at it this way. And I think if we go back, we can go back much further, but I'll just go back to 2006 with the war on Lebanon. Um, and in the Israeli war on Lebanon in 2006, you saw this methodology play out, which is an intensive, intensive air campaign that was the foundation for the, mili- for the, for the attack intensive air campaign. And the intensive air campaign is destroying as much as possible. And that later was called the Dahya Doctrine. And very simply, the Dahya Doctrine is drop as many bombs, as big as they are, and destroy as much as you can from the air. It's clear from 2006 that that is a military strategy. Now, you saw that play out in the previous wars on Gaza as well. And as I said before, it's an intensification of it. So clearly, they're relying on airstrikes or 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 it's also from the sea, right? So they're relying on dropping bombs from above or beyond, as it were. That is the tactic. And clearly, because of that tactic, you're seeing the kind of devastation that is being incurred. It was incurred in 2006 in Lebanon and since in Gaza. And that means a lot because that one has to think about what is the strategy? What is the end game for them other than a genocidal destruction? Um, and I don't, I, I don't know. I don't. I can't predict, predict what's going to happen next, but I suspect I sincerely doubt, and I could be proven wrong, but I sincerely doubt that there will be a ground campaign because I don't think that is, they ha- I don't think they have goals of what a ground campaign would, would accomplish. I, that's not, I think, what they want. And as you mentioned, it would actually, it would, <laughs> it would be fighting on the ground. I don't want to say it would be a fair fight, but it would be, they would be exposing themselves in a way that, you know, in the air dropping um, several ton bombs does not expose themselves to. Yes, well, yeah. I suppose if 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 the object is 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 collective punishment and and trying to make the territories uninhabitable for the Palestinians, then a, a conflict directly with Hamas is is, is sort of irre- irrelevant. And it makes you wonder. It makes you wonder because the news of today is that you know 
However disingenuous it may seem, and I find it to be disingenuous, is that the American administration have relayed to the Israelis, so Biden is relaying to Netanyahu, and that they expect, um, they haven't said ceasefire, but a lessening of the intensity of the attacks. And Netanyahu and the Israeli administration responded saying that we will, we will go through with our strategy. So that makes you wonder what their goals and strategies are, other than utter devastation. That is the only ray I can read what's happening right now. And this is, you know, I don't know if irony is the right word for it, but if you remember, the UN reported that by 2020, I think, or was it 2021, Gaza would actually be uninhabitable. And that, that is without what's happening right now. Uh, the people in Gaza have been struggling for a very long time. So yesterday, uh, Palestinians took part in a, in a general strike in response to the Israeli airstrikes and, and the events in uh, Shejarah and, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, which, which you've mentioned. The strike was observed in, in Gaza, the West Bank, and, and also by Palestinians within the, the 48 borders, within the so-called Green Line. And of course, prior to the strike, there were protests amongst uh, so-called Israeli Arabs in Israeli towns and, and cities with mixed uh, Jewish and Palestinian populations. What's the significance, in your opinion, of uh, what seems to be increasing opposition to the actions of the Israeli state within the 48 borders? I think that the point of what happened yesterday is this larger context. And I think it's important to see the larger context. And I, I am hesitant of, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to go forth in an argument about a generational change. And I think what's happened in my generation and people um, younger than me, um, people in their 20s and 30s, is there's been a lot of mobilization. There's been a lot of ongoing both mobilization and organization and education. This has been happening for, you know, for quite a long time. And I think what we're seeing now are the results of that or the ongoingness of that. What we're seeing with regards to the hit off, which is the movement inside of 48, connecting to what, what is happening and ongoing in Sheikh Jarrah and other neighborhoods in Jerusalem, where ongoing dispossession is, is at play. Between movements, peoples and groups within occupied territories, being the West Bank and Gaza, different forms of being in communication with each other, different forums by which to be in conversation with each other. And that includes the Shittat. So it's also about Palestinians that are not in historic Palestine. So I think what we're seeing right now is, is a culmination of that phase of the last 15 years, if not more. Uh, and yesterday's call for a general strike, if we can look at it for a moment, was really interesting. But because it was calling on the past in order to call for the future. In April of 1936, there was also a call for a general strike in Palestine, which is many historians um, consider the beginning, if not the beginning, then a major part of the, of the 1936 re revolt that happened in the Mandate era. And they were calling on that kind of, calling on in the sense of echoing that kind of politics um, it was a politics of liberation. It was a politics of you know, what we would now call decolonization, which is dismantling structures of power. And it's a politics of understanding that though settler colonialism has produced geographies of fragmentation, which is why we call the West Bank the West Bank and East Jerusalem East Jerusalem and within 48 and Gaza, we live under different forms of settler colonial oppression, different kinds of lack of mobility, um, different systems. But there are things that are consistent and what's happening is, is, is articulating that kind of consistency. Um, so it was very clearly a general strike for Palestine by Palestinians. So that's one point. And that's, again, if we see this as a long, longer story, this is a culmination and it's also another phase of 
further mobilization. That's one point. The second point is the call, as you know, came out from here. It first started actually in 48, then it, it spread. People joined, people became a part of it because it was an ongoing conversation. But it was also a call for action internationally. And if you noticed that there was, I'm sure you noticed there was a lot happening outside of Palestine yesterday as well because people were responding to the call. From what I have read and what I've seen, that call has been responded to. And you're seeing this, you're seeing this happening out, um, in London, the demonstration that happened was 150,000 strong. Um, and we're seeing that in other cities in Europe, in the United States and, and, and elsewhere. So I think that's also a part of why this moment seems so significant and extraordinary. But again, it, even within Palestine, it's a culmination of a lot of work of mobilization and education that has been happening over time. And that is also true outside, which is of political mobilization, education, and seeing sort of how the waves of politics have changed and how, um, you know, it's a new moment for this generation that has long since suffered under, you know, all of the different kind of politics of neoliberalism, um, new forms of neocolonialism and capitalism. So we're seeing connections and, and threads and conversations being nurtured. Yes, I mean, I think that point about different struggles being sort of articulated to, together, I mean, many people have made this point, but I've, I've been very struck sort of following, um, I, I happen to know quite a few liberals in the United States, you know, people who, who were, you know, reasonably enthusiastic about, you know, someone like Joe Biden, for instance, uh, but who nonetheless, I've, I've been surprised to see posting a lot of commentary about, about being in solidarity with Palestinians, and so much of it is articulated through uh, the language of, of, of Black Lives Matter, and seeing that, um, if, if you're not supporting uh, the Palestinians whilst you're uh, supporting Black Lives Matter, that that's an inconsistency. And, and that's been, I, I think, very, very striking and, and heartening to, to see. I just thinking aloud right now, and this is what other friends of mine and I have been thinking about. Don't underestimate the fact that the last year has been an incredibly difficult year globally because it's a pandemic. And seeing how people have responded and reacted to the pandemic, who has suffered the most, how oppression that was always there became more visible to people. And then within the U.S., the Black Lives Matter and the, and the protests that happened over the course of the last year, I think are, are a part of a political wave, a political change that's happening, which is from the ground up, without sounding too romantic, it is really about mobilization from the ground up. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it's also happening at a time where you're seeing different forms of fascism coming into governing power in different, in different countries and in different ways. So I do think that this is a global moment. And I think in a lot of ways, I don't want to say that Palestine is representative of that, but I think it's part and parcel of that. There's that. And then there's the other factor, which is Something I think you can see more than I can, perhaps, is that the optics, one can't ignore the kind of scenes that are running across their TV or social media. And that has to be a moment where people stop and think about well, what's actually happening here. And let's think about this outside of the language and the discourse of corporate media or the language and the discourse of, you know, colonial or imperial powers. Let's try to think through together. And I think that's I think we're seeing that happening right now. Going back to your comments on uh, this this uh, younger generation and, and and the way political organizing is is going on in Palestine at, at the moment, 
Is this tending to be very much outside traditional party structures and, and the um, old political factions and so on? And and, and if so, um, do you think those factions, and, and you know this probably particularly applies to the Palestinian Authority, uh, are, are becoming uh, increasingly uh, irrelevant to Palestinians? I mean, that, that question is, is has the premise that the Palestinian Authority was ever fully relevant. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think, let's, Let's try to understand this structurally. This is how I'm trying to think about this. I think I'm, like I said, I'm hesitant of, but I'm excited about this kind of generational analysis. Let me explain why I'm hesitant. Hesitant because it's not about one generation, right? It is, again, the culmination and the work of, of, of the generations that have come before us. But it's, it, we've reached a certain moment or threshold. Now, that means that politics from the ground up, what people when some people might call grassroots politics or local politics, have had to be nourished because of a lack of representational politics or participatory democracy in a larger sense. So in the different geographies of Palestine, you see that happening in that moment where the peace process took over everything. Now that the Oslo process created these different modes of government for different parts of the fragmented Palestinian population, which meant 48ers, people within the Green Line, were no longer part, you know, it was it was the PA replacing the PLO. So it further divided the Palestinian population between the West Bank, East Jerusalem, within the Green Line. Gaza and the diaspora. So you saw the lessening of the power of the PLO and, and the more extensive power of the PA. You know, that was, we're talking about the early 90s, right? Um, and that was a building, you know, this idea of building a state was, was what was the cover for all of this. And building a state meant focusing on the peace process that talked about occupied territories, which was about the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and East Jerusalem. Now, over time, it became quite clear and to some, like Edward Said, it was clear from the very beginning that that was not going to lead anywhere. He said that, you know, what has been signed now is signing away any hope of sovereignty, as opposed to a process that would eventually lead into sovereignty. Now that, you know, that was very clear to many people from the very beginning, but it became more clear over time to more people. Um, and over a long period of time, it is been entrenched. Not only is it clear, but it's been entrenched. Another phase was in 2000, there was, there was an intifada. And in a lot of ways, that 2000 intifada was obviously against the structures of settler colonial power, but it became clear to people that there's this larger structure that is in power and it is an oppressive power in Palestine, which is settler colonialism. And it appears in different ways and it looks differently, but it all goes back to this structure of power and this idea of local governance, um, which was what was being sold in the Oslo process had no sovereignty attached to it, had no sovereignty written into it. And so that's, that's what led to the last, you know, in 2007, which is when elections stopped and there was this, you know, this reinforcement of a divide between the West Bank and Gaza, which was a settler, you know, which is part of the, again, part of the larger structures of settler colonial power. But what was being used at the time were these supposedly representational pieces of governance, which is the Palestinian Authority. So you see different, you know, in the last 10 years, you've seen a different government within Gaza, then a government in the West Bank and the West Bank, and both without any real kind of sovereignty. They, they neither control borders, nor do they control what comes in and out. They can't even defend themselves, as we're seeing, in any kind of sovereign way. So 
we have what a lot of analysts like to call a political malaise. Um, and that's very true, but I think it's one that was purposefully made and it's one that was purposely made over time. It's not a coincidence that we're in the situation that we're in right now. There's an entire structure right here, right now, for example, where I live in the West Bank, um, that is called the Palestinian Authority, which has employed a, a, a significant number of Palestinians in the West Bank. And it is a go-between between the people who live on the ground and the people who actually make decisions who are the Israelis. So it's an entrenched power, but it doesn't actually have its own decision-making capabilities in a larger sense, other than right now in 2021, you're seeing the Palestinian Authority's singular function in the West Bank is through what is called security coordination. So they're representing the quote-unquote security of the Israeli state. In terms of Israel's strategy in, in, in recent years, so the Netanyahu government has been pursuing this so-called outside-in strategy whereby it seeks to normalise its, its relations with uh, Arab states in the region and, and thereby increase its leverage over, over the Palestinians in order to impose its own solution to the conflict or to simply allow the, the current situation to, to continue indefinitely or, or until the, the territories become simply un, uh, uninhabitable. Last year, uh, Israel signed the Abraham Accords, which normalized relations between Israel and the UAE and, and Bahrain, uh, and was seen as a great coup for, for Netanyahu. How much do you think Israel's current escalation uh, of violence, um, how much do you think it, it, it damages or, or undermines Israel's uh, local and, and regional strategy in this, in this regard? I think there's different ways of seeing this moment. And I think, um, I personally think local, the local way, the most generative and clear way of reading what's happened, what's happening and what might happen next. But there's obviously an international, a regional and a local. If I understand your question is to be the regional, which is supported by international, right? You know, those that wave of normalization happened while the Trump administration was in charge in the US and that was not a coincidence. I think that was a political maneuvering on the level of regimes, both the Israeli regime and Arab regimes in, in, in particular in the Arab Gulf. But we also saw that in Sudan and in, and in Morocco, which is this idea, and, and to a lesser extent in Egypt, which is this idea of what is normalization? It is the acceptance of settler colonialism in the heart of the Arab world, which is the Israeli state. Now, on the regime level, what happened, in particular with the UAE, with the Saudis, you know, standing there as backing it up, was that these kind of economic connections existed for quite a long time. What happened last year and in in, in somewhat in the year before that was that it somehow was read on the regime level of being not only acceptable to sort of talk about openly, but to embrace. They were sort of announcing that the idea of the question or the struggle in Palestine was to be relegated to the past, was to be ignored in general. That was what was behind all of this. The UAE, Saudi politics, um, and follow, follow all the way through. So that was the intention on the regime level. What you're seeing now, what you're seeing now, as I said before, was a product of years of mobilization, but you're also seeing now that there's an a rejection of that, and a rejection of that on the ground in Palestine, and a rejection of that on the ground in other places as well. So you're seeing the divide between the regime and the people once again showing itself to be so clear and wide. Um, so you're right, 
There was a political strategy involved that was that was based on geopolitical and mostly economic sort of agenda, which people feared, frankly, would go through. And it still might. It's still there. It's still in effect. But I think what you're seeing now is a wide political in the Arab world and beyond rejection of that kind of politics. So that's, I mean, that's part of the the regional. And I also think part of the local, and I don't consider myself an expert on Israeli politics, is that Netanyahu himself, his project is actually part of Israeli politics from 1948 until now, which is, but he makes it like Trump before, like where he just makes things more obvious so it becomes more clear, is that violence is a way to avoid political accountability. Um, and so I think a lot of Israeli analysts right now are saying, well, this is just another use of a kind of draconian politics on the part of Netanyahu to cover up his failures, both in the sense of what normalization was supposed to bring to the Israelis and what normalization was supposed to do to change the political and economic map of the Middle East, and also to save himself and his own personal political travails, as it were. Do you think that in some respects, it's almost as if the Israelis at this point can't really help themselves in terms of um, just how blatant and, and, and brutal their policies are and, and even the, the language they tend to use when they're talking about the, uh, the Palestinians because they've sort of set in train these forces within Israeli society uh, of, of ever-increasing radicalization. So it's, it, it, you know, it's not the, the sort of situation in the 90s where you could have a so-called centrist politician leading uh, Israel who uh, would obviously maintain the occupation and all the violence that goes along with it, but at least would be able to front it in such a way that wasn't, you know, frankly embarrassing to the United States or, or, or today, for instance, with, with regimes in, in the Middle East, which are in sort of tacit alliance with Israel? I mean, yes, I think this is this question can be asked in different ways in the different contexts in which it, it can be asked over the course of the last, I don't know, five years, right? You can ask a similar sort of question outside of the question of violence, right? Within you know the Brexit debates that happened where you are. Um, you can ask a question with regards to how, how, how was it that somebody who has Trump's politics that became a pres- the president of the United States? So it's this idea of where is liberalism, right? Both in economic, and in a political context. Like what is liberalism in 2021? Was it a space for discussion or was it a guise or a mask? I think what's happened now is I think you're right. There is, if you know, there is, if embarrassment's the right word, there must be. I, I don't know, and it's I'm rather ambivalent about whether whether people can defend what the Israeli state is doing right now. And perhaps there is very little space to maneuver with regards to defending what is so clearly a genocidal war. So unadulterated use of violence and and um, the bravada that goes along with it in the sense of, you know, not only what's happening in Gaza, but before that, what was happening in Jerusalem. I mean, it, you know, on Monday, May 10th, the, the date that you mentioned, that morning, after a culmination of three days of, of settlers encroaching on the old city, the morning of May 10th saw military invasion of the Haram al-Sharif, where the Aqsa Mosque is. I mean, that was not un- unprecedented in the history of Palestine, but it was extraordinary um, in the sense of what the Israelis and the Israeli political decision, the state on um, local authorities and how 
their, what their decision-making process is, which means essentially, as far as I can read, that there is no, they have no sense of accountability, nor do they think they will be held accountable for anything they do, right? So that's the moment that we're in right now, because there isn't a liberal mask. There isn't a kind of um, superficial reasoning behind this. And I think it's because they don't think they need one. Um, you do have some rare and important voices coming from within the Israeli body politic that are saying this. But in a general sense, the state is behaving, the decision-making process of the state and its leadership are behaving as if they will not be held accountable for anything they do. Been one of the many ongoing things that's been going on over the last 10 days is this consistent attack on journalism and journalists, including the AP offices, the Jazeera offices in Gaza. As far as I understand, humbly, that's a war crime. And I think if there is no accountability, then it will continue to happen. So the question that's posed right now is, will the Israeli state be held accountable for what they're doing? We've already touched on this a little bit, but but just going back to uh, the situation in in Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem, can you explain more about the background uh, and what's occurred recently? Okay, thank you. I would um I would like to be able to talk a little bit about Jerusalem because I think in in some ways it is not only symbolically but, but politically not only the center of all this, but is it, it it can help explain a lot of what's going on. So Sheikh Jarrah is one part of a larger. Um, of a larger story within Jerusalem that is itself a larger story within Palestine. So the actual case of Sheikh Jarrah, as I'm sure many of your listeners know the details about, is that there, there, are, um, there are families, 27 families, who have, been, who have been or are being threatened of being dispossessed of the place where they live. Now, this is not only about this this block or this neighborhood in Sheikh Jarrah. While that, that's what we're talking about right now, I think it's important for us to think about this is this is what dispossession looks like, and this is what's been going on since 1948, and this is what in the Palestinian lexicon we call the ongoing Nakba. So, attack bidding in Sheikh Jarrah is actually not eviction, which a lot of people have said far more eloquently than I, including Muhammad al Kurd and his sister Mona, who are, t- who are part of one of the families who are being threatened. That is the actual court case that's going on right now. What this is, is it's, it's, it's representational of what Zionist settler colonialism is, which is not only one moment of dispossession, but it's dispossession over time and ongoing. So what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah is actually this idea of forced expulsion and what historians call ethnic cleansing. So it's important to think about what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah in a larger context of Jerusalem, because you see this in, you also see this in Silwan, you see this in Etur, other neighborhoods in, East, in Eastern Jerusalem. Um, but you see this elsewhere when you look over the course of the map of Palestine, and you see it over time, when you look from the time of the beginning of the Nakba War, which happened in 19. 19- 47 when the British announced they were going to leave their mandate here up until now. Um, So it's important to see it within that context of the longer history and the kind of methodology of what settler colonial erasure is. It's about dispossession and ongoing dispossession. So it's important for for us, I think all of us to see that the case of Sheikh Jarrah is certainly important because it has has to do with people and the homes in which they live. But the case of Sheikh Jarrah is representational of the question of Palestine in a much larger sense. Um, And I think it's in, it's, 
it's enlightening for us to think about it in that larger framework because as important as Sheikh Jarrah is, you cannot only deal with Sheikh Jarrah without thinking about the larger frameworks of power and oppression that are at play. It's akin to putting a Band-Aid on gangrene as a solution. And I think we need to think about dismantling these kind of structures of colonial violence in order for us to think about what it means for when Palestinians say that they want to live free um, and with dignity. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you've been enjoying PTO, please consider rating the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast application you use. And if you found this episode interesting and useful, it would be great if you could share it on your social media. It really does help bring the show to new listeners. Thanks for listening and for supporting PTO. I'll be back with a regular show soon.